Good morning. Good morning. Let's turn in the Word of God to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. I think I have an outline that's going to go up on the screen if it arrived uh, due to my own negligence. The able tech team here at Boulevard Chapel received it very late, but yet they've done a beautiful job in getting it up there for you. Before I look at that with you, I want to read from God's Word, Matthew chapter 10. It is a delight to be with you. Matthew 10, let's look at verse 1. This, of course, is speaking of the Lord Jesus. And it says, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them. We'll look at what he commanded them by and by. I want to think with you this morning about the question of authority and how authority is delegated from the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Bible affirms to be a king. Not just any king. He is called in Revelation 19, among other places, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you will know that in the four Gospels we have in the New Testament, they are not contradictory accounts of the Lord Jesus. They are complementary accounts of the Lord Jesus. Looking at different sides of the Lord Jesus, different aspects of Him, with some overlap in material, of course. But each of the Gospels, as is well known, has its own distinct emphasis. And the emphasis of the Gospel of Matthew is the kingly glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what I intend to take up with you this morning and this evening and Lord willing on Wednesday is to look at one of the lesser preached on sections of the Gospel of Matthew. That we do have our favorite portions and we often think about the early chapters, especially around Christmas time, that deal with the great truth of the incarnation, that God was manifest in the flesh. And we also, of course, love to think about the ending chapters of the book that tell us about the death of our Lord Jesus, how he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross of Calvary and the events surrounding that. And then, of course, his triumphant resurrection. And the book ends with, Go ye therefore, the great commission, as the Lord sends his people out into the world to be witnesses for him and to make disciples. But it's really in the center of the book that I want to concentrate our thoughts uh, this morning, this evening, and Lord willing, on Wednesday. Now, I understand you have a reputation for having good attendance even on Super Bowl Sunday, on Sunday evening. So maybe in the lobby before or after, I'll do my end zone dance for you if you come out tonight. But uh, we'll look forward to you coming along if you're at all able. And know that I'm from Pennsylvania, and with our birth certificates, they give us a football. So, um, you know, the state that produced Joe Montana and Joe Namath and Jim Kelly and so many other people, Chad Henney, sorry about that. Um, but, you know, 
every state has its problems, but what can I say? But uh, I'm certainly not going to run over tonight. Now, this morning I have permission to run over a little bit. I just want to share with you this outline, though, which the brothers here can make copies, I'm sure, for you. Or if you need it electronically, I'm able to email it if they won't. So this is an outline, as you can see at the top, that was originally formulated by Brother David Gooding, who is a fantastic Bible teacher, gifted brother from northern, he's English, but he lives in Northern Ireland. And it's been modified by brothers Randy Amos and Henry Sardinia, each of whom is no stranger to you here at Boulevard. So they point out that the book has a very careful structure. Without going into this in detail, the early chapters look at the preparation of the king, both his physical coming and also the moral and spiritual preparation to see who the king is. And then the way Matthew is structured is that the Holy Spirit has put down for us five great discourses of the Lord Jesus, five great speeches, or we might say sermons, that the Lord Jesus gave. And then after one of those sermons, there will be a series of stories that illustrate principles from that sermon. So the first one is one of the more famous, the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And you see literary markers, by the way, for each one of these sections of discourses. They begin with some kind of stock phrase, saying that the Lord Jesus called his disciples to him, or his disciples came unto him. Here in chapter 10, verse 1, for example, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him. So we see the beginning of a narrative section, the beginning of one of the Lord Jesus' speeches. And they end uh, also with the phrase something like, then Jesus ended these sayings. Or if you look in chapter 11, verse 1, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples. So right there, the Holy Spirit has nicely demarcated for us the area of the book where the Lord's giving a speech. You remember when Matthew originally was written, it wouldn't have had chapters nor verses for that matter. So if you look at a picture even online of an ancient Greek manuscript, you don't see any numbers, even if you could read Greek numbers. It's not broken up like that. In fact, paper was expensive, so the words just run one into each other. That's why scholars really have to know their stuff to look at those manuscripts. I look at it and it's all Greek to me, you know. Um, no more linguistic humor, I promise. But in any case, the narrative that we're, or rather the discourse that we're interested in isn't showing at the moment, or it is showing, sorry, right here at the bottom. The collection of teachings that we're interested in is the delegation of authority. Now the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, that was interested in showing us that the king has authority. And chapters 8 and 9 show us how that authority is implemented by the king himself. But now in chapter 10, the king is going to turn to his subjects, to those in his administration actually, and it begins by calling them in verse 1, his 12 disciples. But you notice the title changes in verse 2. It says, now the names of the 12 Apostles are these. Well, you say, what's the difference? Well, a disciple is a follower of someone, a learner of someone else. 
They were disciples because they had attached themselves to the Lord Jesus, who was the greatest teacher who ever lived, by the way. And they had attached themselves to him to learn of his teaching and to follow him and to observe him and whatnot. But then when he speaks of them as apostles, what he's emphasizing there is their work of service, how they are chosen emissaries. Because the word apostle has the thought of one who is sent out on a special mission. And so the Lord Jesus commissions these people as apostles. Now I should note that the New Testament as a whole will use the word apostle in different ways. Most often when you encounter it, it's a highly technical description for the group of men that were chosen by the Lord to be eyewitnesses of his ministry, beginning with John the Baptist, throughout his ministry, up into and including his resurrection. They were eyewitnesses of those. So we read of the twelve who were apostles. And we read of Paul, who though he wasn't physically accompanying with the Lord in that time as an apostle, he became an apostle because the Lord revealed himself and revealed all of his ministry directly to Paul in visionary form. So Paul was an apostle. In that sense, we don't have apostles today. Even though uh, there's a country I won't name, there's at least a couple of citizens from the aforesaid country here this morning. But in that country, I've sometimes picked up their newspaper and they'll advertise a conference, and it's marvelous. They'll have, they'll have a prophet and they'll have a, an apostle and they might even have a most high reverend something or other. You know, they spare no titles. I always look at that and I say, false. They aren't apostles in the sense that these people were apostles, eyewitnesses of the glory of the Lord Jesus. Now, it is true that the New Testament does use the word apostle in a lesser sense to describe a missionary sent out from a church. So you get a few odd references in the epistles to different people who were among the apostles. And Barnabas is described as among the apostles. But that's a different kind of apostle. That's one sent out by the church as a missionary. And to avoid confusion, we don't typically call our missionaries that today. Having said that, the Lord Jesus is emphasizing to these people, I'm sending you out. I'm delegating to you responsibility. Now think of that high and holy privilege to be sent out by the Lord Jesus. As I mentioned before, the sixth and final discourse, I said there are five major discourses, but really Matthew 28 ends with an open-ended, what we'll call a minor discourse, because it's short, that the Lord Jesus sends us out. He says, go ye therefore into all the world. So in a sense, we're all called, we're all delegated to have the authority of the Lord Jesus in carrying the gospel to others. But we must understand in context here in chapter 10 that this was a specific time to a specific group of men going out on a specific mission. So they had certain things said to them, which we're going to find out aren't applicable to us. Uh, but there are things that we can glean nonetheless, principles that will help us. Now, we won't stay upon it, but it's an interesting study to look, if you look at the introductory verses, how we have a list of these disciples here. And to think about the disparate group of people that the Lord picked to be his apostles. How these guys were totally different 
one from another. I mean, you had several of them who were fishermen, at least four of them I can think of off the top of my head. You had one guy who was a collaborator with the Roman government by being a tax collector. And I'll spare anyone embarrassment here by making no IRS jokes. And so, but you know, tax collectors were even less popular. And a collector's worse than an investigator anyway. But, okay, one joke, I'm sorry. Um, but tax collectors in the Roman world weren't popular because they seemed to be on the enemy side and taxes were onerous and it was sort of franchised out that they could get a lot by fleecing the people. Now, tax collectors Zacchaeus had, like Zacchaeus, had grown quite wealthy doing that. Matthew seemed to have been a, a lower functionary. He was the toll booth collector. So when you look at the toll booth guy on the Florida Turnpike, it might be somebody that the Lord's going to use in a mighty way. You just never know. And here was Matthew who worked at one of those toll booths collecting taxes. On the other side, you had Simon the Canaan or Simon the Zealot, as he's often, often known, who probably had some connection to the political group, the Zealots. They weren't really a political party. They were more underground. They were closer to a terrorist group. Well, they would have said they were freedom fighters, but you know, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And so here was a guy who wanted to topple the Roman government, who was against the Roman government, maybe he wanted to do it violently, but he was brought together as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember Frank Haggerty telling me about a picture he had of Christians among whom he labored in Bolivia. And he said, in this picture, you can see a man who was among the guerrillas that were with Che Guevara when Che Guevara was killed uh, by the Bolivian forces, supposedly with help from the CIA. Go figure. But also in the picture was another man who had been in the Bolivian army unit that was hunting Che Guevara. And he said, you know, later both of these men came to Christ, and here they were at a conference of elders together. That's what the Lord Jesus does, doesn't he? He bridges all different kinds of groups. And even among his servants, he calls all different kinds of people. People that are off the charts smart and people that don't consider themselves very bright. People that are very wealthy and people that don't have two nickels to rub together. And quite a few in between, I might add. The Lord brings together all these different kinds of people. And sadly, even among that group of the last name, Judas Iscariot, we're always reminded of him. He always comes last in the Gospels and the lists of apostles. And it's always said of him something to the effect that he was a traitor. Here it says, who also betrayed him in verse 4. Now the Lord Jesus sends them out. And what kind of a mission were they being sent out on? Well, I tell you, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a fair weather message. In other words, it's not a message only for when the good times are coming. You know, let the good times roll. When your health is good, and when you're driving the nice car, and when your job is going well, and when your family's pretty well doing okay, you know, that's when you need Christianity. No, 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 no. Christianity, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, comes into a world that rejects it comes into a world of problems, a world of pain, a world of suffering. So 
it's not surprising as the Lord briefs his apostles on their mission that we're going to find opposition and difficulty. And particularly, he's sending them out to Israel. Look at what he says in verses 5 and 6. Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, is the Lord Jesus a racist? Is he being pro-Semitic and anti-non-Semitic? No, not at all. Because you will find even in the Gospels that when a Samaritan would come to the Lord Jesus and want to be healed, or when someone would come who was a Gentile and wanted to be saved, the Lord Jesus' grace extended to them as well. But we have to understand that the kingship of the Lord Jesus centers in God's promises to his earthly people, Israel. And that one day, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to rule and reign for a thousand years on this earth, his headquarters is going to be Jerusalem. So he was coming to the people of Israel, a people that God had been preparing for millennia to receive him, to receive their Messiah King. Why? So that he could just bless Israel as his fair-haired boy? No, not at all. But that Israel could be a light to the nations. That through them, everyone could come to know the Lord. Think of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2. As Isaiah sees all the nations of the earth flowing into Jerusalem. And the people saying, come, let's go up to Jerusalem and learn of the law of the Lord. Elsewhere, the prophets tell us that seven men are going to grab hold of a Jew. Hmm. Now listen, nowadays in the world, if I said to you, seven guys grabbed hold of a Jew, what would you think of? You'd think, man, it's happened again. Anti-Semitism. I mean, has any ethnic group been attacked and persecuted through history, through the last 2,000 and more years, like the Jews have? You know, that city of Jerusalem, which was conquered over and over in antiquity, and then the people finally scattered from that nation, and every part of the world where they've been scattered to, sooner or later they've been persecuted. I want to be clear, because sometimes our Jewish friends have mistaken notions about what we Christians believe. The Lord is not against the Jewish people. Far from it. He wants Israel to be saved. The New Testament explicitly says that. And the Lord will not condone persecuting Jewish people any more than He will condone the forcible and physical coercion of non-Jewish people. The Lord Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world, in John 18. If it were, then would my servants fight. But now it's not from here. The Lord Jesus' kingdom is a coming kingdom. A kingdom based on truth. And a kingdom that's going to be marvelously inclusive. Because that prophecy I referred to, when seven men grab hold of a Jew, they grab hold of a Jew and they say, You know the Lord. You're a Jew. Come and tell us about the Lord. Take us up to Jerusalem so that we can learn about him too. Wouldn't you love that to be stopped in the street this week in Pembroke Pines or Hollywood or Boca Raton or wherever you come from and somebody stop you and say, you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Or even to stop you and say, there's something different about you. I look at you and I see a peace. I see a joy. I see something I don't have. I want what you have. May God indeed use our testimonies like that. 
He sent them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he told them, verse 8, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you've received, freely give. Now it's interesting, when you read the previous section in chapters 8 and 9, these are the very types of things the Lord Jesus is doing. And he ends chapter 9 by saying famously that the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest field. And now in the next chapter, they're being sent out. May God stir us up to pray that he would send out more workers to his fields. And we might find out when we pray that diligently that it might be us that he sends. You might find the Lord touches your heart. You read about any of the great missionaries that God has used in the last few hundred years especially. And for a long time before they ever set foot on quote-unquote foreign soil, they were praying about missions. They were reading about missions. They were caring about missionaries. They were interested in that. Don't come and think missionary work is an adventure. I get to go to an exotic climb, you know. I get to go to some interesting place. I have to always apologize almost up north when I tell them I'm coming to South Florida for meetings. If you think that's bad, you should see what I have to do when I tell them I'm coming to the Bahamas for meetings. <laughs> then I really get persecution from my brethren. <laughs> but you know what? Missionary work is the same all over the world. We're trying to reach people with the gospel of Christ, and we're trying to build up the body of Christ in God's word, and it's hard. So as he sends forth these people, he tells them, preach the kingdom of, hand, the kingdom of heaven rather is at hand, verse 7. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Now that's just not because God arbitrarily likes healing people. Yes, God doesn't like pain. God doesn't like suffering because they are products of the fall. But having said that, God's plan to eradicate suffering from the world is future. It has to do with the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's not now. And some of his choicest saints, some of the people that he brings closest to himself and makes intimate with himself, are people that right now suffer the most. Some of them suffer great persecution. Some of them suffer a great deal in their bodies. And God doesn't heal them. Why? Is that some kind of discredit on the character of God? No, not at all. It's more a demonstration of his wise and gracious purposes. That he leaves the trial. That he might shape us and mold our characters to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. I had part in a funeral last night in Satellite Beach of a good friend of mine, Clint Irvin. A man who for more than two decades suffered tremendously in his physical body. But what everybody kept saying about him through the funeral, and it was true, here was a man who lived in heaven while he was on earth. Here was a man who set his affections on things above and not on things of the earth because he saw himself as he was positionally as a believer, dead, dead to this world, but alive in Christ. He saw his life as hidden with Christ in God. No, they were to do these miracles specifically as signs to Israel because that's what Isaiah and the other prophets said Messiah would do when he came. Now, it's interesting. The Lord told them, freely you've received, freely give. 
Provide neither gold nor silver nor copy in, nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, because a worker is worthy, says the Lord Jesus, of his hire. So them going forth as emissaries of the king, they have a right to expect that the people in the towns would take care of them. And if people didn't take care of them, it was a very serious matter. He says, when you go into a household, greet it. Verse 12, if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return unto you. In other words, how they received the apostles as they were being sent out was an indication of how they were receiving the king himself. If they received the apostles and said, praise the Lord, we can see this is of God. You tell us the king is here. He's on the scene. The kingdom is nearing. Praise God. We see it. We receive you. We want to bow before the king. But others said, who are these people? They were like Nabal, the fool, who in, when David was rejected, they said, there are many men. Nabal said, there are many men nowadays breaking away from their masters. Who is David? You know, there's a lot of people that say that today, too. We tell them about the Lord Jesus. We tell them the Lord Jesus is coming to reign. And they say, well, what can he do for me right now? What can he do about my paycheck right now? What can he do about my health coverage or whatever right now? I want him to do things for me in this life. And we say, oh, no, it's not that the Lord won't work in your life. But if you come to Christ now, honestly, you may have more problems than you did before. Because you'll find yourself in a spiritual battle now. Satan leaves those alone who he has safely kept. But if you come to Christ, you find a new battle. The devil's against you. The world's against you. And the flesh is against you. As Galatians 5 says, the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. You may have more problems if you come to Christ. But guess what? You'll also have Christ who will stand by you and sustain you by His Spirit in every trial, in every difficulty, and who will strengthen you. No, they weren't to go out charging. They weren't to charge money for what they were doing. Freely they received, freely they, get, they gave. But they were to expect hospitality from the people. And if the people didn't get it, they would have judgment. They would have to account for it Someday, the verse 15, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, the Lord Jesus left them under no illusions. Verse 16, he said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In other words, we have to have the intelligence, and to a degree, the cunning without the malevolent side of that word. To know that we're going out in a world that hates us and where we have to be careful how we act. Because if it gets the chance, the world will deal hard with us. But at the same time, we need to be harmless as doves. It should never be said of the Christians, you know. These people are a threat to us. Either physically or even politically. I mean, I understand the outrage at some of the sins that are openly tolerated in society today. But you know what? The Lord doesn't call us to stop everybody from sinning today. What the Lord calls us to do is preach his gospel. 
Because the Lord Jesus can change hearts. The Lord Jesus can save people. But he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them, and notice, and to the Gentiles. So even in this mission to Israel, he's not forgetting the Gentiles. They'll deliver you up, but don't worry about what you should speak. It'll be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. It's going to have family implications. Brother will deliver up brother to death. Father is child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will have not have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now that was a promise that is even now future. It's true that the disciples entered into some of that persecution in their own life. They did know in the early chapters of Acts, you can see it, what it was to be delivered to be counsels and scourged and persecuted. But in a future day, it's going to be far worse. But the Lord said, you know what? You flee. If you can get away from the persecution, flee it. And you won't have gone through all the cities of Israel till I come. It's interesting that sometimes in Scripture, God tells people to stay and stand, though they die for it. And sometimes God tells his people to flee. So what is the right spiritual thing to do if persecution comes? Do you run or do you stand? Well, it depends what the Lord tells you to do in the instance. And we can't sit in judgment on our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are facing persecution. Some will flee it and live to fight another day, so to speak. Others will die under it and witness to the Lord Jesus. As Hebrews 11 says, not accepting deliverance because they wanted a better resurrection. Wonderful that God is going to use us one way or another. Well, persecution is going to happen. It happened to the teacher. He tells them it will happen to the disciple. If they attributed the teacher's works to Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, or another name for the devil, essentially then they would do the same to them. But they were to go forth in the fear of God, and they were to confess the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's difficult. It's hard to stand for Christ in a world that hates him. But think of that coming day when the Lord says, this is one who stood with me in the fight, Father. This is one who suffered for my sake. This is one who I was able to uphold and use, and I confess them as mine. What a wonderful day that will be. How small will seem whatever we've suffered for Christ when we enter into that glory which shall be revealed. No, the Lord says he came not to bring peace, verse 34, but a sword. Christ himself is inherently divisive. You can't sit on the fence. You're either for him or against him. And he would even divide in the most intimate units we know, the family. Well, what of it? Are you willing to stand against your family if need be? And say, my family's wrong. Christ is right. It's not an easy thing to do. And for someone like me who had Christian parents... 
It's not something I've had to do very much of, at least toward my parents. I have other close relations where we have to take stands with them, and it's not always easy. It's hard. There's opposition even in your own home. But know that the Lord Jesus faced that in his home, didn't he? Some of his brothers came and his own people, and they said, he's crazy. <laughs> Been out in the sun too long. He's got one of those messianic complexes. You know there are 3,000 people locked up in Iran today because they think they're the Mahdi, the uh, Shia version of Messiah coming for Islam. So some crazy people do get a savior complex. But the Lord Jesus, he wasn't crazy, was he? No, he had the credentials to back up who he was. And so the Lord Jesus suffered at the hands of his family. But look how he closes. He says, verse 40, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall no means, by no means lose his reward. You know, sometimes it's hard to identify with the people of God. The world laughs at Christians, people who are really Christians, who really know the Lord Jesus. They mock believers. And they say, you're not one of those people, are you? You're not one of those Bible thumpers who believes all those crazy stories in the Bible, are you? And I laugh. But you know what the Lord wants us to do? He wants us to identify with His people. To say, yes, I'm a Christian. Those are my people. Whatever their faults and failings, by the grace of God, they're going to be with the Lord for eternity, and I'm going to be with them too. And by receiving them, I know I'm going to receive a reward too. You think of something so small. Opening your home to a prophet. Well, right now it seems like a small thing. Someday it might get you arrested. In some parts of the world tonight, it can get you killed. But the Lord says, if you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, you'll receive a prophet's reward. We can't all go to the front line, so to speak, and preach. But you know what? The guys on the front lines in any army can't fight without the supply line, without the people staying back, taking care of the stuff, and sending it along. We need people to pray. We need people to give. We need people to minister to the missionaries. And all because we recognize we're connected to that king. And we're willing to suffer reproach for his name. And we're willing to identify with those who are hated in this world because of the Lord Jesus. The one who bore shame for us and yet promises us glory. And we'll share in that glory if we serve him thus today. Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray we'd take these things to heart. We pray that we would be thy witnesses. We realize this was to a specific setting and place and time. And yet, Father... Certain things haven't changed. There's still great opposition. There's still tremendous persecution. And we don't face much of the physical kind right now, but Father, it could certainly come here. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in India, in North Africa, in the Middle East, in parts of China, in places around the world who are facing physical persecution. 
Help them, Father. Strengthen them. We pray that they'd witness a good confession like the Lord Jesus did before Pontius Pilate. And we pray that we'd witness a good confession in our work, in our school, in our homes. That we would confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the only Savior. And that we would follow the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully by thy spirit. We ask in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.